Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm delighted to be talking to Bryony Thomas. So here's a question Do you think you're wasting money on marketing? Do you think you're wasting some of it, all of it, or you have no idea? What if marketing could be a profit center, not a cost center? If you knew what you were doing was having a real impact on your business, would you spend more money on it? I know the answer to that last question is yes. But most people, particularly business owners who don't come from a marketing background, are unsure. We can get blinded by the marketing babble that people throw at us or the fads that people tell us we should invest in. So today I'm talking to Bryony. She is the developer of a methodology called the Watertight Marketing. She wrote the book. Now she's got a school where she teaches it and she also has practitioners who can come in and help you. So we talk about what it is and why it's easy to understand and how you can then invest behind the fundamentals to grow your business. Great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Bryony Thomas. I'm the author and founder of Watertight Marketing. We are the providers of a process that helps people to put marketing into a business that underpins long-term healthy sales results. Thank you. Who? Welcome. Who's your target reader, target customer? As anyone who's ever worked in marketing or creative pursuits will know, having a muse is always helpful. Whilst I was writing Watertight Marketing, that I had a very specific individual in my head. In fact, I pinned his photograph to my computer. And that chap's name is Patrick Nash. Hi, Patrick, if you're listening. Patrick was the um, chief executive of a client at the time called Connect Assist, who were a, a £2 million business based in Cardiff. And I figured that if I could explain it well to Patrick, then most people who I would want to enjoy the book would enjoy the book, which, of course, doesn't mean that only Patrick has enjoyed the book. But the, the key things about him that made him a really good muse whilst writing, and every time I got stuck, I just thought to myself, how would I explain this to Patrick, was that he's a, a chief executive of a two million business, not from a marketing background, but re- been around long enough to know enough of the words to have a decent conversation about marketing, typically quite cynical about whether marketing can deliver, and a little bit frustrated at the fluffiness that often goes with the topic, but also very smart, very astute, the kind of person who asks me brilliantly difficult questions that I love answering. Right. If he read the book, what would he do? Is there a specific challenge that you think, or is it just growing revenue? No, there there are four things. So the first is to turn the way that you look at marketing inside out and upside down. So by inside out, I mean to truly understand how a buying decision is made through the eyes of your buyer because people get very me focused um, and they get very myopic in seeing that from their own perspective particularly if they've been in business for a while you ask them what do your customers think and they tell you what they think 
as in we think this great what do your customers think so seeing it inside out and then upside down is probably the critical thing so in my experience over the last 23 years most people just approach marketing the wrong way up they try and follow the likes of facebook who create awareness and monetize later and if you have a bottomless pit of cash then not making money for a long time whilst you create a bank of goodwill can work. But for those of us who perhaps need to pay mortgages, doing it the other way up tends to be far more sensible. And that is to look at the marketing tools and techniques that you need in place to make sure your customers say your customers love you, tell the world about you. Then those tools that help convert anyone who might be interested in. And if at that point you still need more, great, then do what most people call marketing. So inside out, upside down look through the eyes of your customer. And then the other things are to see marketing not as something you ever tick off. I'd make the analogy uh, between marketing and fitness. And often it's not that people don't know what they need to do, it's they don't do it. You know, I went to the gym in January, it's September, and I've put on weight. Well, no surprise. And most small businesses are a bit like that with marketing. Even when they have dedicated resource, they've got into such a campaign mindset, it's equivalent to yo-yo dieting you know, the jumping from one campaign to the next campaign rather than getting a baseline level of fitness. So seeing it as fitness and a lifelong habit. And then the other is to make sure that everybody in your team understands the same thing by the same words. Because often what we find in any organization, uh, particularly exaggerated in those that have a sales team, is that people use the same words but mean very different things by it. So marketing will talk about lead generation and um, sales will see those leads as nothing more than fluff. So it's really important that your entire organization use the same words, but critically mean the same thing when they use those words. And so watertight marketing becomes a language that everybody uses and understands. Yes. Well, that whole marketing think this is a lead, sales think it's a load of shit because what they wanted was an order. They might have to do some selling. Oh, my goodness. They want to talk to someone and do some converting. Ah! I know. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, So why did you write the book? What got you to this point? Well, as with any destination in life, every step you ever took got you there. I started out in marketing uh, in 1997. I genuinely, I can trace aspects of the Watertight Marketing book to my very first telephone fundraising job for ActionAid when I was a student. But it essentially, over my career, I have seen how people waste money on marketing. My dad was a builder and he was very into efficiency and sustainability. It was a crazy hippie in many ways. My whole perspective is how can I make this more efficient? How can I make this more efficient? So over my career, I've essentially built up a bank of research and I've I've also done MBA and diploma and all of that and had it kind of academically verified of all of the ways on aggregate that most businesses waste money on marketing, which is the touchpoint leak framework, which is in chapter two of watertight marketing. So when I wrote it, that was based on 200 businesses. And I'm a bit of a nerd. And so I have actually collected data over my entire career. uh, And it it developed into this framework. So when I set up into I set up my own business 2008. When I left, I was director of marketing for Experian marketing services in the UK, accidentally. Um, Another story. And that business, me as a time for money consultant, got to six figures within eight months. And we were turning business down to say we, as myself and a, and a lady called Cheryl Crichton, who's also still very involved in this business. Um, we were turning business down at three to one. 
I was speaking a lot locally as as kind of awareness lead generating activity. And I kept drawing all the same pictures and having all the same conversations. So I figured I'd write it down. <laughs> Go on, tell us the story about Experian. How did you accidentally end up there? How did I accidentally at 28 end up as a director of marketing for a FTSE 100 company in the UK? Uh, every job I've ever had, when I top out, I have to leave. So the moment that someone says, brilliant, Bryony, have the director job, I go, ah, oh dear, I've reached the top, I better leave. So I was at Mason Zimbler, um, they're a tech marketing agency. Uh, yeah, I know them, yeah. Right, okay, so I was heading up the Microsoft account and uh, Mark offered me the account director role. I was 26 and so I had to resign, clearly, because I figured if I took it, I would never leave. So I resigned, which I'm sure wasn't Mark's intention. I decided to go and do a full-time MBA because I'm a bit of a qualification junkie. And whilst I was doing my MBA, I wanted to make all the projects uh, real. So I knocked up all my contacts and said, would you like me to do you a project and also turn it into an essay for my MBA? And one of those clients was a company called Clarity Blue, which when I say to most women, they think of a pregnancy testing kit. They're not. Uh, They were predictive analytics. They were predicting things, but not pregnancy. Predictive analytics for most of the major retail banks. Sky was one of our clients. Anyone with millions of customers, big data stuff. So I did a project for them. And that expanded into a director of marketing role for Clarity Blue. The brief was to make them look expensive. And we were acquired by Experian for 85 million, which, you know, tick. That was pretty expensive. And my role then expanded into the director of marketing within the marketing services division at Experian. So I never intended to get the corporate job. Aha. Uh-huh. And then you got it so you felt you had to leave. Or did you do it for a, or did you do it for a bit? Well, exactly. No, I did it. I, I, was there for, I was there for about four years. And the moment where, yes, the moment where I kind of topped out on that role, I left, yes. And set up your own business. Yeah, I should have waited another six months. It was 2008. I would have got a whopping payout. <laughs> ah, timing. <laughs> I know. So 200 businesses you've got the data on? You know, I look back and think, God, it would be great if I'd written all this down. But you actually did. Yeah. That's great. I think about it and then go, no, it wouldn't be. It's not me. So these leaks. It's now 2,000. 2,000. Fab. And so what data are you collecting on these businesses? Typically SMEs, is it sort of 2 to 10 million or is it? 2 to 20. I'd say 2 to 20. 2 to 20 million turnover, typically somewhere between 10 and 250 odd people. Although um, there are um, services on, we, we set up a learning platform called Watertight Web School. Um, so solo and micro businesses can access the materials in a video guided way. But when we get hands on with a the client, they're at that two to 20 million um, mark. We'll come back to what you do for them when you get hands, when you get your hands on them. But what are these leaks in the funnel? Does the funnel, does a marketing funnel really exist or is it just a figment of somebody's imagination? Yeah, well, you know the answer to that, don't you? Um, you, know, you know exactly what I'm going to say. So if you do an image search on Google for sales funnel, you get 33.6 million results. And they're, they're all in primary colors. Now, I didn't get that memo because in my book, it's black and white. Anyway, 33.6 million pictures of something that is apparently called a sales funnel. Now, everybody knows, anyone in business who's heard sales funnel pipeline hopper, whatever you want to call it, now, that needs to be said with an American accent, doesn't it? My sales harper. Essentially, this is a diagram that is larger at the top and smaller at the bottom and therefore looks like a funnel. But what it is showing is the reducing number of people at each stage in that process, which is precisely the opposite of a funnel. 
I mean, literally the opposite of a funnel. At each stage in this diagram, people are leaving the process. So if you actually had to choose a kitchen utensil as a metaphor for some, most uh, sales setups, you'd be reaching for perhaps a sieve or a colander. <laughs> a sieve, because you've still got something left once everything's dropped through. Where's a colander? Color, Maybe you've all you got is the pasta. Exactly. So funnels and fil- I talk about funnels and filters. And so genuinely, I, not only do I think it doesn't exist, I think it's dangerous. I think it's a dangerous word to put into your head because language is extremely powerful. And so if you talk about a sales funnel, everybody starts to think there is one. And you go to marketing and go, can you fill the funnels? <laughs> It'd be great if you had one. But you don't. you got a sieve. That, you know, I use the analogy of a bucket. So if the aim of the game is to get water into your bucket, then I promise you, assuming there's a sales funnel is ridiculously dangerous. So I get people to reimagine it. So I get them to imagine a bucket at the bottom and there are marketing tools and techniques that can make sure that your water, your bucket is watertight. Once you have a pretty robust bucket, you move up to funnels and filters, funnels and filters. It's almost as critical that marketing qualifies people out as brings people in. And then, and only then, is it worth turning marketing taps on? Because your buckets and your funnels are typically elbow grease. They're all one-off investments that pay you back for a great deal of time. Whereas taps you pay for every minute they are running. And so if you start with your bucket, move up to funnels and filters, and then do taps, it all works so much more efficiently. It's like compound interest. Magic. Yes. Give me some examples then of the elbow grease bits. Yeah, sure. One of our kind of poster people for um, Watertight as a process is an incredible woman called Holly Brooks, who runs a business called Ordenza. When they started working with us, they were called Mia Fleur. And they do beautiful things for your home and garden. They're they're an online uh, retailer for interiors and beautiful gardens. Now, Holly, her sister and her mother set up that business. They're based in Leicester and they were running it out of her dad's potato warehouse. An auspicious start. Oh, man, honestly, they're incredible. They are incredible. So when when, um, Holly read the book and she called me and she said, "Um, I'd really like to do your master plan program. And I said, don't be ridiculous. I don't really do low-value consumer. And she said, no, no, I really think it's going to work. And I said, well, go on then, have it for free, because I'm not convinced. So we worked on it together, um, and she went through the process. And by golly, it worked. And it was really interesting. And it's been fascinating for me to see the methodology applied in context that I haven't imagined. <laughs> That's, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's been used for charity. It's been used for release from addiction it's been used in b2b it's been used in because it's incredible it blows me away anyway so holly did master plan and only tweaked so we call it tweak your leaks so she did leak one two and three over 12 months and i believe she spent 500 pounds in her first year on actual things and i'll give you a couple of examples of what what they did so they were kind of thinking they needed to look a bit like not on the high street they needed to look big and we turned that upside down. If in doubt, Brian's going to tell you to turn it upside down. And I said, no, look small, look personal, look like Holly, Amelia and uh, Jackie and talk to the world about yourselves and your journey. And, and it was simple things like putting their faces on the product pages saying, I chose this. I saw something when I was on holiday and I found this and it looked just like it. And it was really exciting. So those little touches didn't cost anything. It's time. Yeah. And then the other lovely little thing they did was so simple a little handwritten card that went in with every delivery. So just a little packed with love by Holly, uh, a little link to Holly's profile on their website. Um, 
really cool real simple little changes that was her that was her first year she did one two and three leaks one two and three and they doubled both turnover and profit within that 12 month window so she decided to do it again second year so most people who do watertight it becomes an ongoing um, methodology it's not a tick list that you finish it's a mindset that you adopt for life so next year she does it again and they decide to make the really bold decision of changing their brand from Mia Fleur to Audenza. And they now talk about being audaciously bold with your design choices. And that was massive. I mean, they've had press coverage in Harper's Bazaar and all of that as Mia Fleur. They had massive SEO Google juice as Mia Fleur. Phenomenal brave decision to switch brands when they were you know, quite a long way down the path of getting a good little reputation for themselves. And so for a while, it, that slowed them down. So that's leak three, by the way. The rebrand was leak three. And they had to slow down for a bit. And everything slowed down maybe for about three months as um, Google was rediscovering them and all the journalists were realizing that Mia Fleur is now Aldenza and all that. Phenomenally brave move. And she spent more than 500 quid on it. And uh, so it slowed down for three months. And then in the following nine months, they doubled revenue and profit. And have now taken that much further. There's a brilliant interview um, with Holly actually on our, on our YouTube channel. So she's an absolute superstar. Why was the branding Mia Fleur slowing them down then? It was of its time. Well, first of all, Mia Fleur, and this is my my interpretation. I know they have, you know, they had lots of attachments to the name, but I'm going to be bold in what I say. And it's what I said to Holly. Sounded a bit like an old lady's perfume. And actually, if you look at their styling choices, if you look at the way and also their own values, being brave, being bold, being audacious was so much more them. You know what? It's so funny. The, uh, when you start, you have no idea that some of these decisions that you make are going to just take you down that cul-de-sac. And then you're going to have to make such a bigger, braver decision later to get it right. And people think... People aren't thinking ahead. They're not thinking, what would this business look like if it was 10 million or 12 million or 15 million? And, and like, how do we build a brand that helps us get there versus let's just do something quick on the back of a fag packet and pay somebody $99 to do as a design and we're off. Yeah, see, I'm going to challenge you on that. I'm quite a fan. So I always set as the first bar for any business to reach on any of the 13 touchpoint leagues to put something in place that's functional and not too embarrassing. Because functional and not too embarrassing makes money. And on branding in particular... I don't think you can see forward until you are at least 18 months to three years into feeling the edges on the business you are building, to talking to real customers, to truly knowing um, whether something lights your soul or irritates you. So actually, I think it's very sensible for a startup to spend a little. Oh, sorry. I, look, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking you, you might be one and a half, two million. And then it's now we need to... We need to go like, what would 10, 12, 15 million look like? You're, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. Look, if you're starting from scratch and you've got no money, spending $99 is, <laughs> let's, let's go make money. Your brief will be so much better once you've got to, because you, you learn about yourself, you know yourself, and you cannot know what it's going to be until you've lived it for a bit. And that's, that's fine, absolutely fine. But there comes a point of maturity, and it's usually at the point where people are, try- are systemizing in order to scale, where you sometimes need to make some brave decisions and there are, um, you know, there are biz- lots of businesses that we've worked with who've ended up renaming and rebranding. And um, not that that's my top piece of advice, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it can, it, it can. And there are two things with renaming that I've seen. The first is that they assume that everybody's heard of them, which is frankly ridiculous. People don't care. 
you can come back as something else. And honestly, they really don't mind that much. No one's as bothered about you as you think they are. And the second is that they think that it's built up as an asset. You know, they think that changing their name will confuse the market. Google will never know who they are. Blah, 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 blah. Is that a good enough reason to stick to something that's holding you back? Let's say you were going from being a school county runner and you decide you want to go for the Olympics. Do you think you're going to need to make some massive changes? Yeah. So if you want to be an Olympic level athlete or a world class business, there are going to come times when you need to take massive changes. But if you just want to run a bit faster, little changes are fine. Look, the world is no shortage of gyms or diet books, but that doesn't mean that there aren't a shortage of larger than they would like unfit people. And there are no shortage of business and marketing books either. <laughs> no, absolutely. So it's not about the not, it's about the execution. I mean, some of it is people wish they were fitter and wish they were thinner. And you just have to get off your couch and do something about it. Yeah, you do. But the other thing is you have to stick at it. So I use the fitness analogy loads and often, and this is very true of marketing, of businesses of, of all sizes. So there's that campaign mindset, but they either they haven't got dedicated resource or they're in that campaign thing, which means that they're hopping around and they never do something for long enough to see the benefit. And they over measure and measure too often such that it slows them down. Yeah. So if you're <laughs> trying to lose weight and you get on the scales every day, you're going to depress yourself because you'll see barely any movement at all. Um, you have to resist getting on the scales. I know that Weight Watchers don't let you get on the scales between meetings. You know, so don't do it. And actually, many businesses, particularly because the marketing industry is obsessed with um, talking about measurement as if it's some sort of panacea, people think they need to measure, 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 measure. But actually, it can be deeply depressing. Whereas if you just do what you know is good for you for long enough and resist the temptation to look for micro movements, you will see larger movements what are some of those fundamentals that people should have in place on the measurement side i'd say ratios over volume one of the things that often when we go into a business and we're, we're helping them to systemize their marketing operation we'll look at their measurement framework and everything has a volume metric attached so things that they can count um, how many people visit our website how many followers do we have how many email subscribers do we have quite frankly i don't care what really matters is the ratio between the technique that you're using for one step in a decision and the next. So for example, if new visitors, so eyeballs on website is a volume metric, I'm much more interested as a proportion, how many people go on to spend more than two minutes on your website. It's the ratio between those two things that demonstrates that you've got movement through a buying decision. And so people get utterly obsessed with volume metrics and they set targets for volume metrics whilst ignoring ratios. And so ratios between each step in a buying journey, that's where true change happens. Volume is a, is a result of that. Okay. So you've got some of those metrics, you've got some of the leaks. What else, do, what else are some of the top things that people get wrong? They um, conflate skills and tools. So often when we, uh, when we go through a touchpoint leak assessment, which is the first starting point when we work with people, we do essentially a health check. And I will say to people, go through the touchpoint leaks, we're doing the assessment, we'll be asking questions. So for example, let me take leak number one. 
what's the top leap, Riley? That'll be leap number one called forgotten customers. So if you forget about them, they forget about you. We talk about earning the right to the favor, earning the right to the next sale. Dominic, let me ask you, do you have some friends who only call you when they want a favor? Is that just me? I <laughs> know I'm I am that friend that rings them when I want a favor right okay there are some people who when they call me I know that all they want is babysitting because it's the only time they ever call I do also have some real friends and they remember my birthday before it shows up on Facebook because they actually know me and they call me to invite me out to interesting things that they know I'll find useful so which of those two people on a night when I'm available for babysitting am I likely to do the favor for if they both need a favor on the same night the real friend So when you look at forgotten customers, we look at customer communications and what they're doing is they're sending out um, sales offers. Uh, We've got a discount. We've got a new product. So you're asking them for a favor, right? You're asking them to buy something from you. That's a take, not a give. They think it's a give, but it's not a give. It's not a give. It's a take. Yeah. So that is buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. In order to earn the right to the sale, our three themes around forgotten customers are service, special and social. So I say to someone, how do you make sure that you are primarily of service to your existing customers so that when they see something in their inbox from you, um, that's a welcome email that they're looking forward to it? How do you make them feel special as opposed to anyone else? So often we save our best stuff for those brand new people and we forget about the people who are paying our mortgages. And how do you facilitate social interaction? Now, when I ask those questions, people will say, oh, yeah, um, Sally's really good at that. Sally always remembers what their kids are like and da-di-da. That's a skill, not a tool. But if Sally leaves, that skill leaves with her. And so for each of the touch point leaks, what we're looking for is a repeatable, systemizable tool that anyone in your business can reach for. And that's the difference between a sales, uh, a marketing tool and a sales skill. And a skilled salesperson equipped with an effective marketing tool that has the massive advantage. Yes, because even the skilled person will forget sometimes. Oh, man, I watch my own videos back and say, good idea, Brian, would have forgotten that. (laughs) But also, the business doesn't scale because they don't know the manager or the owner of that business has no idea what she's doing. Absolutely. I see that all the time. I go into businesses and we we look at their account managers. And Margaret's been here for 20 years. Margaret is not a salesperson. She just knows how to get shit done if the customer wants something. And then they hire somebody else and they're not as good as Margaret. Of course not. Because they've got no systems. No. And so often people, people will go through the touchpoint league assessment and you see them getting weighed down heavy going, oh my God, there's all this stuff I need to do. You can build a business just on sales skills. Absolutely you can. It's just easier to scale. You, know, you, you will have a scalable, saleable, fun business when you have tools as well. But you don't have to have them. I mean, you can do it all on elbow grease if you want to. But actually having some repeatable, scalable tools and building a system asset as you go just takes you into a different league. So what do you do? So you've written the book and you said earlier that you've got a business and you were turning loads of people away and you do sort of 10 to 20 million. What what does your business do? How do you you get a hold of people and sort them out? <laughs> well, fortunately, I don't need to grab hold of anybody. They rather delightfully come to us. So the process that we take people through is called a marketing transformation program. And over a period of 12 to 24 months, we do four 12-week sprints of a change program. 
Um, so the first is a benchmark where we will go into an organization, we'll do a touchpoint leak assessment across all employees, and that's brilliant fun. Um, you see internally what your perception of marketing is because that then drives what you might do externally. So we do a benchmark, and within that, we get people starting to use the tools, etc. So once we've completed that benchmark phase, we go on to the energize phase. And energized, we split into two tracks. So we have a slow track and a fast track, slow, strategic, fast, tactical. So we set up plumbing teams doing tactical fixes that we know are going to have um, bottom line impact pretty quickly. And then a slower stream of the leadership team who are looking more systematically at um, some of the watertight frameworks that help set an ongoing strategy. So we do benchmark, then energize. Um, then we've got embed. And embed is where they might license our training tools as an internal resource, tailor that to their internal versions. We have some digital tools and our digital toolkit is growing into a software as a service offering that then plugs into the business across the whole business to help them plan and run um, watertight iteratively. So we do benchmark, energize, embed. And then in that final 12 week sprint, that's where we step away. And if we've done our job right, then we come back to celebrate with them and occasionally do kind of a quarterly check in thereafter or maybe train a couple of new people as they come on board. But if we've done our job right, then Watertight remains the language of the way we do things around here for marketing forever after. Sounds fantastic. Because also that's different from many agencies or consultancies that actually their business model is they want a dependent client yeah, no, um, I started my very first marketing job was for ActionAid. Um, and I think I've uh, I've continued that overseas development mindset. Um, I know language has changed. I'm not sure overseas development is the phrase that people use these days. But essentially, we want to equip people to make confident decisions about their marketing and to grow their business as a scalable business. And if we've done our job right, then they are perfectly sustainable in their own right. And we step away. It's the kind of teach a man to fish type approach. And we're not an agency. We're the providers of a process and a whole series of thinking tools. And our ongoing revenue is based on um, two things. So one is the licensing of our software tools and our training materials. And the other is that we license and train certified practitioners um, who go into businesses to mentor and deliver um, watertight marketing consulting programs. So we have no, we just want people to use it. And be successful. Too right. And how did you end up turning your book into an apprenticeship program? Yeah, I know um, your business um, has an apprentice going through the apprenticeship program at the moment. Well, that's a classic example of the need emerging quite naturally. So James Lott of Working Knowledge, who operates the apprenticeship, they license our material to use within that apprenticeship. James had done our, was going through our 12-month process and he fell off the wagon. <laughs> because he got too busy and he hadn't managed to get into that lifetime habit. I mean, he went and landed a multi-million pound deal. And for some reason that distracted him. I can't think why. So I picked up the phone and said, James, uh, you seem to have slowed down on your progress here. What's going on? And he said, oh, you know, I'm doing this delivering um, excellence for clients business. Um, and uh, what I need is, an, is a marketing apprentice. And I laughed because he does apprenticeships. I said, yeah, that's a great idea. And he said, what I really need is an apprentice who understands what site marketing went that's a really good idea why don't we do that and so we looked at the government apprenticeship program and i'm going to sound awful now but it really wasn't very good 
Um, so the digital marketing apprentice syllabus, I'm told it was put together by professional marketers, but you know, they come in many shapes and sizes, don't they? So <laughs> I'm sure they were well-meaning. I'm sure. Well, and I'm sure each of the elements makes perfect sense. What doesn't make sense is the sequencing. And so I think each of the elements on the syllabus is really, really good. But if you did it in the order that's laid out in the sequence, it wouldn't make any sense at all. I think that what they've done is they've had discipline specialists come in and look at elements. I don't think anyone's done that big picture piece of saying, how would this actually sequence productively within a working role? If you were just doing it as an academic course, I can see that you'd get to the end and suddenly you'd get it. Whereas we do it the other way around, which is you get it and then you iteratively do it because that makes for a productive person. And so, so it's taken us a while. I work, Rachel Wheatley, who's one of our master practitioners, she's been licensed by us for the last five years and she's extremely knowledgeable of Watertight and, of course, brings her own 30 years experience to the party. She unpicked it all and put it all back together um, using the Watertight marketing frameworks for the marketing principles piece so that people in jobs in the sorts of businesses that we've worked with for the last 10 years can be productive from day one of their apprenticeship, not a year later. Which is fascinating. It's not what you expect when you take on an apprentice. You don't expect them to actually turn up and be able to do something quickly. So it's great. If in doubt, Dominic, what you will find with type marketing is, well, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> Upside down and inside out. You got it. So if you, uh, knowing what you know now, if you went back in time, is there some piece of knowledge you'd like to take back with you to... I think I would counsel myself to be less frustrated. Everything I've set out to do, I've done, but two years later than I had anticipated. I wrote the book whilst I was pregnant and it was in production and editing whilst my daughter was very young. And then when the book came out, the personal circumstances for me were awful. Um, my, my dad died. He got a terminal diagnosis two weeks before the book came out and he died six weeks after the book came out. And so through writing the book and, and initially publishing it, I was out to lunch, to be honest. I just wasn't in. In that year where most people are launching and really putting it out there, I really thought I was losing pace. I thought I was, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm never going to get this back. You can only launch a book once, all of that. And I think I'll just cancel myself to chill <laughs> and to say it'll all be all right. Because fortunately, one owns the copyright on a book for 80 years. And so I'm planning to launch this book for I've got 64 years left to run. <laughs> so I'll be launching it every day for the next, you know, well, in fact, the second edition comes out next year. So that gives me another 80 years. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and other than uh, your own book, Watertight Marketing, what else have you read along the way? I mean, you said you've done a diploma and you've done an MBA. So I guess you have picked up the odd book along the way that you thought was quite good. <laughs> I can't count how many business books I've read. What one or two or three stick in your mind that made an impact on you that people should pick up? Okay, right. There are three. So a book that I've read uh, more than once, and I will no doubt read again, and I think goes brilliantly with the Touchpoint Leaks, is The One Thing. Yeah. In order to help people to see how... So I always say nobody needs more marketing ideas. They need fewer on which to truly focus. And one of the things that Watertight really does is get people to prioritize and focus in on the one thing to be doing right now. And if you want to understand the science of why focusing on one thing at a time really works and the psychology of that, then the one thing book is fantastic. So if you need a reassurance to stop spinning many plates and to focus in on the things that really matter, then, then read that. Or if you get distracted from your one thing that Watertight tells you to do, go and read the one thing and it'll remind you to do one thing. It's kind of the premise of the book. 
And then the other one uh, is Valuable Content Marketing by Sonia Jefferson and Sharon Tanton. Sonia and I, had, through the first five years of me being consultant, Sonia and I worked on a number of projects together. Our thinking is pretty mirrored and developed alongside one another. So Valuable Content Marketing and Watertight Marketing are really quite a hand-in-glove process and methodology. And then the, the third one, I would say, although he's written lots of very good books, I think the best of them is Daniel Priestley's 24 Assets. And I can quite quickly map where Watertight sits in, in the 24 Asset map um, to underpin where, where Daniel says you need a system here. Funny enough, we've got a system. And it's a, it's a great, because I'm all about efficiency and building a system asset as you go and making sure that each of your time, money and energy investments builds on the last, having an asset focused mindset is really, really powerful. Fantastic. Brian, thank you very much indeed for your time today. You're so very welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.